minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Sinkavi, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com. M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A dot com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And she is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And that is at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Drake Eastburn. And he has written... A ton of books on the subject of hypnotism, and I think the one that came up most recently was the uh, Hypnosis Bible, something like that. What was the name of the new book, that book? <laughs> Hypnotist Bible. Yes. So, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, and I also know you have a book like, What is Hypnotism? So, I figured I'll start with that, you know, because, you know, I don't know if there's... I mean, I've read a little bit, you know, about like mesmer and all that kind of stuff and stage hypnotism. But, you know, what, what is it really? Does it have anything to do with that actual kind of thing? Well, all of those things. There is some uh, something to all of those kind of things. Yes. And uh, when mesmer was around, mesmer actually was uh, what we call a magnetist. All, he was our first modern hypnotist. Hypnotism has been around for a long, long time. Shamans have used some form of hypnosis for years, whether it's chanting or maybe it's drumming or mm-hmm. things like that, but are uh, incantations that they've used. But uh, hypnosis has been around for a long, long time. We have no idea really when it started, but Mesmer was considered the first modern hypnotist, and he was a magnetist as well as were many uh, of his time. And they used magnets. Uh, it was believed that magnets had all these uh, mystical healing properties. And, uh, of course, in those days, there wasn't TV and stuff, so uh, metal objects that attracted each other and repelled each other were of great interest mm-hmm. and were thought to have special powers. And actually, there's probably something to that. I mean, even nowadays, we have uh, magnets for healing and stuff that do seem to have an effect. So it's not all bunk, but... Uh, right. But uh, Mesmer did not realize that it, what was really, it wasn't the, the magnets so much as it was the power of suggestion that these magnets were doing something, and uh, more like a placebo effect, we might say. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, some time later, people like uh, Marquis de Pusiger, uh discovered that there was other ways to put this magic to work, and, uh, and it's been developing ever since. But some of that early work... Uh, has really been a mainstay in what we do today. And some of the terminology has uh, uh, stayed all that time. Uh, uh, Pusiger used the term somnambulism, which means, uh, literally translated, means awake and asleep at the same time. It's also a term used to describe sleepwalking. But he realized that his people weren't asleep. Uh, that was a common belief back then that people were asleep, but they weren't really asleep, and they were in this uh, state. And um, there's what we call uh, natural somnambulists, which are people that go into hypnosis very easily. And he referred to these people as physicians, and he would uh, hypnotize these people. And what he realized was that people in a hypnotic trance were uh, really good at tapping into their uh, psychic abilities, and he was using them to uh, uh, analyze some of his other patients, what their illnesses and things were. So that's like uh, <laughs> a brief little hint into this world, but it's a huge world. <laughs> right. Is there a difference between placebo effect and hypnosis? No, actually, placebo effect is 
a, a form of hypnosis, a method of hypno, hypnosis, and it's mainly what we call waking hypnosis. Mm-hmm. It's typically used in a waking state, but if the, you know, the country doctor gives you a sugar pill and he tells you this is going to cure your mumps or whatever, and it does, it's he's giving a suggestion in a waking state, and that's also what we call a prestige suggestion because he's held in a position of high regard. Uh, his suggestion has more effect than if his mother or wife was to tell him the same thing hmm. because the doctor is is held in this position of prestige. So in our mind, we'll accept those suggestions. It's like when the doctor tells you to change some habit, it has more effect than if your wife or somebody like that was to say the same thing. So uh, it, we say we like to have clients in a, what we call a somnambulistic state when we give them suggestions because they're more receptive in these uh, deep states. But the truth is people are highly receptive to suggestions. And depending on the circumstances, uh, we'd be more subjective to them. And especially how a suggestion is given to us, the time that it's given, and who is giving it. If the person that's giving us a suggestion is believable, or somebody that we hold in a position of prestige, that suggestion is likely to have more effect than if some somebody, just offhanded family member, gave you the same suggestion. So that's our hypnosis is out there all the time. We watch TV. We're getting hypnotized all the time. Buy yeah. this, buy that. You know. And you, you think it, it doesn't matter, but <laughs> I've been seeing this commercial come up over and over from Nissan, and I'm going, you know, I'm not going to go out and buy a new Nissan, but, you know, if I was thinking of getting a new vehicle, I might actually, I'm going, that's not a bad commercial, and they keep, they have some little taglines they use over and over, and uh, it really hits the, the subconscious, and it's like, man, you know, I, that Nissan might cost me less than the truck I've got right now, you know, like, but, uh, you know, so you do consider these things, and it doesn't take a whole lot of people mm-hmm. to make that advertisement pay off. Right. That's one of the interesting things, too, sometimes I wonder, because we're bombarded by advertising and capitalism 24 hours a day, and I'm like, are any of my thoughts even really mine, or have all been planted <laughs> by corporations? Yeah. Well, there's something to that. And there's a lot of theory right now that whatever we remember (laughs) is not what actually happened, but it's our story about what we thought happened is Mm -hmm. what we really are, is calling our memory. Uh, Certainly something happened, but uh, it, it, and I talk about this in uh, my book, The Power of the Past, but it's like how we see things creates that memory. You know, it's like we go around in the world as if I'm this uh, recording machine, recording everything that's going on. But as much as we are that recording device, we're also the projector that's putting it out there because a lot of it is we're seeing what we expect to see as much as we're recording what is going on out there. You know, my wife was just recounting something yesterday, and I'm going, and she doesn't. she's telling me what happened. I'm going, I was there. I know what happened. But I didn't say that to her. She thinks I wasn't even in the room there, but I was there when it happened, and I and I uh, was aware of it. But you know, it's it's how she remembers it. Mm-hmm. And and you've probably recounted something from your past with a family member or something, and you're, and they're recounting their uh, version of what happened, and you're going, God, I don't remember it happening like that at all. You know, so it's our our memory is mm-hmm. a funny thing, and. Uh, it's, you know, we rely on it a lot, but um, it's not always as accurate as we would like to think. Hmm. Sometimes I wonder, like, often, so there's stories that I've told, and I'm going, am <laughs> I remembering, am I recounting the story, or am I recounting me telling the story about what happened? Right? Right? It's weird. It's weird. Like, I also, you know, and I hear about this too sometimes, is like, because the the memory is just that, it's just a memory, you know, we can change the way we frame those memories, though, to benefit us in the future. Like, like I can look back at life and say, all these all these bad things happened to me. Or you can look back at your life and go, I survived all these things. Look at me. Yes. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can change the way you frame it to affect how you move forward. 
Absolutely right. And I, and, uh, I have clients and they go, well, why is it that all I remember is all this crummy stuff? But that's what impacts the memory is anything that's got emotion connected to it tends to have a stronger memory. And those things, you know, when we were being brutalized or whatever, have a very strong memory uh, attached to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some clients that will go, well, I don't remember much of my childhood. And the reason is not much happened. You know, they they didn't have, you know, they grew up in a high-functioning family. It wasn't a lot of dysfunction <laughs> impact the subconscious. So they did Or, on the other hand, it could be the opposite. We could have a, a, a bad experience, and the mind is blocking that out. And in hypnosis, we find those things. Because if somebody goes, well, between six and eight, I don't remember anything, you can almost bet something bad went on, and they've been blocking it out. And hypnosis that will come out because that's probably where their issues are is where it's blocked it out. Hmm. How does that work? Like, like, well, I would think in a, like in a logical way, like if I don't remember it, it never happened. It's not affecting me. And then that's if I remember it, then it's going to affect me. Like I almost look at like, like this reversed way. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think so, but it is a way the mind is, the subconscious is trying to protect us. Mm-hmm. So we're not dealing with that constantly. But the thing is, we still act out here in the world as if this has been happening in our subconscious. You know, it's like, well, I don't go to shopping malls and I don't do this and that, or I go to movie theaters and I don't want to. Well, if you didn't have that issue, maybe you would expand out into the world a little more because that's holding you back and whether you realize why or not. And, and always we do need some adversity. We need some adversity growing up so that we can learn that we can overcome obstacles and continue on. And then we tend to be healthy adults. I worry a bit about some of these uh, kids that are coming along with these helicopter parents that are trying to protect them from every possible thing. They're going to get out into the world as adults and they're not going to know how to deal with life. And uh, they're going to have to have mom and dad around all the time. So we need some challenges to... So that we can overcome them and mm-hmm. teach ourselves that we can do these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of the point of life, I think. You know, it is we, we go through life, we meet resistance. When we hit the resistance, we have a choice to either back off or go through it. If you back off, it makes you weaker. If you go through it, it makes you stronger. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer of that. And, you know, I had a pretty dysfunctional family life growing up and, um, and I, you know, I've worked on those things and, but I also appreciate it to some extent because it's helped to formulate who I am. You know, I, I was raised as the stupid kid that was never going to amount to anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I, I wouldn't accept that. You know, I mean, I didn't, I did really poorly in school and like that, but, uh, later on in life, I, I, my my parents didn't want anything to do with me when I was a kid, but later on in life, now they want to claim me because I'm doing stuff. You know? And it's like, yeah, well, he's ours, yeah. Yeah, where were you when I needed you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to do that kind of stuff. So when, when you, with your practice, like in the hypnotist Bible, like what motivated you to write that? Like, like, and what is it? Is, is it scripts? Is it history? Is it all of that? It's, okay, so it is a ton of information. It's basically a huge glossary of terminology that is common to hypnosis. Well, some of it's not so common, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I had uh, one, one guy that uh, got my book. He just picked it up and he just read through it. Now, it's, it's a reference book, mm-hmm. but it is an interesting thing to just sit and read. I mean, all you start to read these different terms, and it also it, it pulls you through the history of this. By, by reading these terms, you're also learning where they came from and some things that you didn't know, that they didn't teach you in any hypnosis class somewhere. And, uh, you know, if you're reading some hypnotism book somewhere and there's a term and you don't know what that means you can look it up in my book because there it is and it and 
And to me, um, you know, when you understand the terms of a subject, then you have a lot more clarity about that subject. And things start to make more sense. You know, we know Mm -hmm. we use certain terms, but we don't often know why or where they came from or how that happened and like that. Even the term hypnosis was kind of an accident. Dr. James Braid, he was a neurologist, and he uh, he wrote a book called uh, it had it was uh, basically nervous sleep, but that's what hypnosis. He thought hypnosis had to do with our nerves and sleep, and he named it after the Greek god of uh, sleep, hypnos. And then he decided, well, wait, this isn't really sleep. And he tried to change the, nerm, the name to uh, monoidism because he thought it was about focused concentration, where focused concentration does play a big role in hypnosis. But the term hypnosis has already caught on. And, and so the new term didn't. You know, it's like, uh, you know, when you get something, a name out there in the world, you know, it's like mm-hmm. uh, we've changed multiple personality disorder to DID or disassociative identity disorder. But everybody still calls it multiple personality <laughs> disorder. And I think that's really more descriptive of mm-hmm. what we're working with. But, you know, a term catches on. They change it all the time. Yeah, right. Right? Like, um, uh, manic depression is now bipolar. Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. And, and you know, both of those things are descriptive. What we're trying to, I think, we try to be more politically correct. But, uh, you know, sometimes the term is pretty good already. It doesn't need to get changed. <laughs> <clears throat> so what are some of the interesting things that are in that book that people may not have known? Okay, there's a ton of things, but there's a uh, one thing that I have uh, found of interest is there's a a Russian scientist named uh, Vladimir Bechterev, and I'm still trying to find more information on him. He was some kind of a genius, and he was the same time as Pavlov, and he and Pavlov were in opposition. Mm-hmm. I think Bechterev probably. Uh, had greater knowledge, especially in the terms of condition response and things like that. And he he was a hypnotist, uh, and um, he he thought hypnosis. And this was way back in the early 1900s, so it was like uh, using it to stop smoking and things. He thought it was great and like that. Uh, but he was called in to. Um, diagnose Stalin and he, or to treat him or whatever, I forget it was, but anyway, he diagnosed Stalin as being uh, uh, paranoid. And the next day, Vektorov was found dead. <laughs> foul play is suspected. <laughs> but he had written a lot of material, had done a lot of research, and a lot of it was destroyed uh, because probably of Stalin and what was going on in the country at the time. So there was probably, the guy probably had a lot of good uh, information uh, that we'll never know about. He did write some books, and I'm kind of searching to see if I can find it. They're probably still in Russian, which wouldn't help me much, but who knows, there might be some out there. Mm-hmm. There's also, um, in my book, The Power of Suggestion, and I talk about this a little more in the Hypnotist Bible, but there's what we call a pro-hypnotic suggestion. Everybody's familiar with post-hypnotic suggestions, which is a suggestion I might give you in hypnosis that uh, some habit or something, will, will, when you go out into the world, this is going to be gone. I mean, that's kind of a simple, simplified way of putting it, but that's what it is, and that's what... Most of the suggestions that a hypnotist is giving you are post-hypnotic suggestions, things that will affect you later on in your daily life. But this pro-hypnotic suggestion is something that, um, oh, Andre M. Weitzenhofer, uh, and he was a professor at Stanford University, 
Uh, he also worked with Milton Erickson and other people. He was a big name at the time. And he said a pro-hypnotic suggestion was a suggestion that they gave prior to hypnosis that the hypnosis uh, activated that suggestion. And when I wrote about that in uh, The Power of Suggestion, I, I, you know, I said, I'm just mentioning this, but it's not something we're going to cover because it really doesn't have any practical purpose for the average hypnotist out there who's going to be using this. But now, <laughs> as I think about it, we're using pro-hypnotic suggestions all the time. And I don't think uh, Weizenhofer even recognized this. But even in our intake process, we do what we call a pre-talk, mm -hmm. which is preparing the individual for the session and what's going to be going on. Those are pro-hypnotic suggestions. And I do a lot of work in an Esdell state, which is a very deep state of hypnosis. But it's a lot of that pre-talk is preparing the individual for what's going to happen once they start to enter this state. And actual things happen, like there's certain sensations that occur that I talk about. But once a client starts to feel these sensations, they kind of go, oh, yeah, that's what he was talking about. And it's like they just kind of let go into it. And then they really get into those deep states where I can do some, you know, really specialized kinds of things and be very productive. But it's all because of suggestions I gave them before we ever went into formal hypnosis. Mm -hmm. So uh, that pro-hypnotic suggestion is around and well in our lives as hypnotists, whether we realize it or not. But those are a couple of things that are uh, great interest. I took a course once on Erickson hypnosis, yeah. and, and that was like a, a part of it. Like a lot of times, the suggestion was planted before you even planted the suggestion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I tell my students, I go, you know, if you do good waking hypnosis, then when you get your client into trance, you could just about read to them from the phone book because you've created an expectation that what's going to happen in hypnosis is going to happen so that when they leave, they leave with the change. And it, you, it almost doesn't matter what you did. And I remember, um, here's a good example. Years ago, um, I went to the dentist and uh, he says, man, you're eating your teeth. And I had noticed some tension in my jaws, you know. And he goes, I can make you a night guard. And I said, no, that's okay. So I said, I'll just do some hypnosis and get rid of this. And it just so happened that a couple of my students were going to do a session on this. And I said, well, I'm going to sit in on your session and steal some of this. And I'm sitting there, and they had a script they got from somewhere. I don't know. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to this. And I'm going, this is the stupidest script I've ever heard. But I stopped grinding my teeth, you know. So, <laughs> you know, so it's like just getting set up for it. Uh, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it just doesn't take much uh, to make a change. Uh, uh, something similar that happened is my wife and I were at a uh, in a business meeting in Omaha. And it was over the Fourth of July weekend, and when we came back to Colorado, we're driving down Interstate 80, and uh, I'm just driving along. And all of a sudden, I get this horrible nosebleed out of nowhere, and I'm grabbing napkins and stuff, and I'm trying to get it to stop, and I can't, and I, there's no place to pull over, and I'm just, I'm getting mad, really, and I don't get mad much, but boy, <laughs> I was getting ticked off. And I see a rest stop, and we pull in, and I wanted to go into the restroom and get cleaned up, but it was the 4th of July, people were lined up to get in. And I see a picnic table under a shade tree off in the distance. So I go over there and I sit there. And Lindsay goes and finds some paper towels and stuff. And she comes over and she starts hypnotizing me. And she starts, she's talking about the right brain and the left brain. And, you know, and I'm going, oh, God, this is never going to do anything. And I, I swear I could tell the moment that the uh, bleeding stopped, I could just feel it. It's just like, it's just like a switch. And we drove home, never had any more problem. I, I never said a word to her. I was still <laughs> pissed off. I wouldn't even talk to her about it. But I, I knew that very moment. Boom. And, and it's funny. You know, I've, had, I've helped people stop 
uh, nosebleeds and other kind of bleeding and stuff. And, and I, you know, I kind of just take it for granted. But when it's me, you know, it's like, oh God, you know, but it was just a simple little thing, but just sometimes it just doesn't, doesn't take a whole lot and boom. And, and that's, that's kind of the way that, uh, uh, that all works because there was an expectation. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we do in hypnosis is we create that expectation. People create expectations all the time. They create the expectation that I'm going to wake up every Monday morning with a headache or, you know, whatever. And guess yeah. what? It does. So part of my job is creating a better expectation. And when we create a strong expectation, that expectation tends to be realized. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden we have a change in our, our world. Now, with hypnosis... Do we need do I need another person to do it to hypnotize me, or how about self hypnosis? Is self 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 hypnosis actually effective? Sure, and I do self hypnosis all the time, and we can do a lot. You know, we can help ourselves a lot. You know, I did the uh, the silver method in the early seventies. I don't know if you're familiar no. with that. What is it? It is a form of hypnosis, and it's still alive today, but it's part of the Mind Valley people. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're no. very um, progressive kind of organization. They do a lot of stuff on uh, uh, spiritual things and uh, self-improvement and like that. But it's a, it's a big deal. But uh, Jose Silva built this method based on hypnosis principles, and it was mainly self-hypnosis that we were doing. And there was lots of healing, you know, healing of the physical body and things like that. And, oh, uh, prosperity was a big part of it. But uh, positive mental attitude was a huge thing, shifting our mental uh, attitude. And, you know, I had come from a very dysfunctional family, uh, very negative. And it's like, and Silva's mantra was kind of like, change your mind, change your life. And and I took that to heart, and I really did turn my life around, you know, and it's and and moved ahead, and and a lot of that was self hypnosis. Now, uh, there are some things where having a hypnotist is going to be highly beneficial. You know, it's like you know, if I have a sh- sore shoulder, I can rub it, and that can help. But if I have a massage therapist rub it, it helps even more. You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like that. Having two minds working on uh, an issue increases the, you know, because somebody else can see things from a whole different angle that you're not. You're stuck in the pain of whatever's going on, and you're not looking at all the other possibilities. And just having another mind there uh, is a big thing. You know, it's like couples. They get get in a diversity, and they can't seem to find their way out of it, and they go to a... The marriage counselor and the marriage counselor may not be even that great, but they go, well, yeah, but you're saying this and you're saying, and if you, and it's like, because we're caught in the stuff, we're not looking at the other ways of doing something and how we could, you know, we're getting in our own way (laughs) and just in our own mental stuff. And that's what, uh, back then we used to call, um, running old tapes or, uh, like that, which meant, you know, if a couple starts to, you know, he says something, then she says something, then pretty soon there's this back and forth. And if you listen to what they're saying, it has nothing to do with the original issue. But something that we said begins to trigger old responses from the past, and we just dive into that old mental uh, loop, and away we go. And we're not actually achieving anything except uh, getting ticked off at each other. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because that 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 third that that outside perspective is invaluable. I think because one of the things I know for myself, anyway, at least with my ego, I'm always going to tell myself I'm right. You what's that? I'm always going to tell myself I'm right. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like a disease, I, or or that my way is the right way, even though it might be the hardest way in the freaking world. Yeah. Yeah, I know somebody dear dear to me. <laughs> I won't mention any names, <laughs> but that's uh, that that 
that's a disease, really. And it's like, and that goes back to memory, too. We think what we remember is right, and that could be the only possibility, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's not at all. We Good. see things through whatever our paradigms are. You know, it's like the, the policeman walking the beat. He sees people as a potential criminal or like that. And uh, the evangelical is seeing everybody, uh, people, those same people as somebody that he can bring into the flock. And, you you know, and uh, so we all see things from whatever our paradigms are. And it's maybe not at all very accurate. (laughs) Is there such a thing you think as an accurate perception? What's that? Is there a, such a thing as an accurate perception or an accurate paradigm? You know, uh, it could be, uh, but it's almost, um, it's probably a rarity. I mean, we probably get pretty close at times, uh, but it's how we see things. You know, mm-hmm. in, in my book, The Power of the Past, I tell a story about how I was on a three-month-long backpacking trip in the mountains, and I was in an area where nobody was. Uh, uh, and um, But I had, uh, uh, I had hitched a ride with this ranch hand and uh, went back to his ranch, and he, and the, he and the rancher there told me where I could go, that where there was an old homestead up in the mountains. And I hiked up there, and I used that as my base camp. But they also said, and I'm, I'm not trying to be politically incorrect, but this is what they said. They said there's some Mexican sheep herders up there that would uh, uh, take a long-haired hippie like you and stab you and leave you for dead there. So that they put that. That was a suggestion that went into my right. mind, and I'm always <laughs> kind of rolling around in there. Well, I'd been up hiking around uh, for quite some time, and I uh, camped out this one night, and the next morning I got up, and I was going to head back towards the homestead. And I got into a clearing, and off in the distance, out of the trees, where it was all uh, scrub oak and sagebrush, I could see this hill way off in the distance. And on that hill, it looked like there was a crucifixion. And in my mind, I'm going, you know, there's, you know, out here in the middle of nowhere, Mm -hmm. there's nothing like that could be going on. But I go, well, anyway, my route back to the uh, homestead is going to take me past that. So I'll be able to figure out what it is by the time I get there. But every time I would come to a clearing or something, I could see this hill in the distance. And the closer I got, the more it looked like there was a crucifixion. And when I got down into the area where there was sagebrush and scrub oak, and I was walking along, I began to see these carcasses of dead, mostly dead sheep, along the way. And the closer I got to where this hill was, the more of these carcasses there was apparent. And some of them, you know, were old and been laying out in the sun for a while, and some were pretty fresh and in different uh, stages of decomposition. And I got closer and closer to that hill. And the closer I got, the more it looked like this was a crucifixion. And I start going up the hill, and I get closer and closer to it, and the more and more I realize, no, this doesn't just look like a crucifixion. This is a crucifixion. And I was kind of at that moment in Gestalt therapy, we call this the, the choice point. You know, it's like at this point, where, where do you go with the individual? What do you do from here? And I was that guy who, when the murderer is running loose in town and the lights have gone out and there's noise in the basement and I go down there with a match flickering you know, <laughs> or a candle, I was that guy right at that point. And I, so uh, I could have, I could have done a lot of things. I could have gotten the heck out of there. I could have gone and called the sheriff and made a fool out of myself or whatever. But when I got up there, it was a scarecrow. It was a very good (laughs) scarecrow. But until I got within feet of it, I couldn't tell that it wasn't an actual crucifixion. And let me say this. The emotion 
that are connected with, oh my God, it's a crucifixion, and oh, it's a scarecrow, are way different. (laughs) (laughs) But this is how we see things. Um, I could have left, and I would have been left with feelings of, I've left somebody hanging on a cross out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Or I could have, like I said, gone, found the sheriff and, and made a fool out of myself. Or I, you know, I could have spent the rest of my life, you know, churning with that emotion in there. But it was only by actually going up and getting close to that to find out that it was a scarecrow and not an actual crucifixion. Come to find out there was a sheep herder there, but he was a Basque Spain sheep herder. And uh, he had put the... Uh, scarecrow up because uh, coyotes had been killing his uh, sheep, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's that was what that was there for. But uh, to cap that story out, but you can see how we can interpret things. You know, I don't know, you've been a hunter or whatever, but if you go hunting, if you're looking for deer, it's like every little brush, every little shadow looks like a deer. You know, it's like I used to be an ultra distance runner and. Some of the places where I ran, there were a lot of rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always, every little stick, every little shadow along the trail looks like a rattlesnake because that's what you're looking for, you know. And so that creates our reality. And, and our reality, what we think is our reality and what really is reality, isn't like that at all. Yeah, reality is definitely sketchy. It's definitely different for each individual. Yeah, that's why in hypnosis, we can shift somebody out of a highly emotional, uh, uh, what do I want to say, um, well, uh, a, a symptom, uh, oh, uh, the word's not coming to me, but a symptom produ- producing uh uh, an uh, event, but mm-hmm. uh, it and it could be something that happened very early in life. But how we remember it and how we respond to it, we can take them back into hypnosis and we can change that. And part of that is due to cognitive dissonance. The mind wants to go from a dissonant state to a state of consonance. And we do this more than we think we do, but in hypnosis, Things are exaggerated. You know, we feel this, we feel feelings and things that happen that happen in our normal lives, but in hypnosis, they seem to be highly exaggerated. And we get into this dissonant state, highly dissonant state, and then we offer the subconscious a consonant state. It readily goes to that consonant state. And then it's as if that dissonant state never did happen. And we go into life as if our normal way is from a consonant place, and all of a sudden, life is better. People go, well, will I remember the horrible thing? Yeah, but it won't have the same charge to it, and you won't be inclined to recall it because you've changed. How how do you do that? Do you change how the person associates the feeling? Yeah, so feeling is is the key. Uh, like if somebody has a fear of flying and, uh, I, I've helped zillions of people get over their fear of flying and never once has it been about airplanes. It's never about freaking airplanes. It's always something else. And airplanes are just something that's triggering it. It could be more like, um, claustrophobia, but usually it's feelings of being out of control and, Oftentimes, those feelings could go clear back to our birth experience. Maybe we get caught in the birth canal or something like that. And those are the things that uh, that tr- trigger. The plane is just being a trigger for that. And something may have happened. People go, oh, well, I was on this uh, flight to Chicago, and we hit this turbulence, and I've never been able to fly since. Yeah, but that's almost never <laughs> the thing that, that caused it. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, that's what we call a symptom-producing event. Uh, and uh, that's what people remember. Or they'll go, oh, what was this thing in junior high school? Basically, if you can remember what triggered it, 
that's not it. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> always something else. And it's usually something much earlier. And a lot of times it is like a birth experience or something like that. Where, uh, and, and right now I've got a, most of my clients that are coming in now, you know, used to be smokers, smokers, weight, this, that, the other thing. And now most of my practice is anxiety and panic attacks. It's, you know, everybody's coming in for that. And I think it's just a reflection of our culture where we are right now. Everybody's under stress. You know, you turn on the TV, you hear all the horrible things that are going on. And uh, we had the pandemic and we had uh, the financial crisis before that. We've got all this uh, political freaking diversity going on. Everybody's just, uh, our, our lives are just suspended. You know, nobody feels secure right now. And so anxiety that we may have had some coping strategies for before now is breaking down and people are showing up in my office uh, by the numbers. Hmm. That's interesting, you know, because, you know, I guess people will be, people prior to all this meltdown stuff didn't have that anxiety and now they do. How do you deal with that? Like, like what do you do? You tell them, oh, just forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the politics. <laughs> you know, a part of it, you know, it depends on the individual because mm -hmm. I mean, some people can actually, you know, get PTSD, things like that. But basically people come in and I, put them in a deep state of hypnosis where we can get rid of their stress and stuff. People can lose their model for how it is to feel good. You know, it's like, cause they've been stressed out for so long. Yeah. They don't know how to feel some other way. Mm -hmm. So in hypnosis, we can show them how it feels to not feel like they did when they walked in the door. And uh, then we can do something else. It's like people who have depression, you know, anybody can have depression. I mean, uh, and almost everybody's had what we call situational depression where, you know, you lost your job or your girlfriend broke up with you or somebody died or like that. That's normal to feel some depression at those times. But generally, that's not long lasting. But when depression goes, the longer it goes on, um, we know the more likely is that it will continue to go on. And if it goes on long enough, depression becomes our normal state. Mm -hmm. And we forget what it's like to feel good. Hmm. And if we can't get in touch with those feelings again, we can't get out of the state of depression. And that's one of the things we do in hypnosis, too, is get you attached to feeling good. And if you can, once you feel good, now you have a model you can step into. It's what we call a transformational suggestion we need a model to move into for the subconscious you know i can sit there all day and say oh you feel good you feel great be happy you know that doesn't help you know it's like eh, the mind's going eh. but if you show it hey this is what you can do this is how you can feel same way if somebody wants to lose weight if i can sit there all day and go you're 110 pounds you're 110 pounds that's not going to have much effect on the subconscious but if I connect them with when they were a cheerleader in high school and, you know, got those legs that gets issued with every one of those cheerleader uniforms, then now they got a model for how it feels to be healthy and fit and lean. And now it's easier for the mind to get into that and they can move into that a lot easier than if I just say, you're 110 pounds, you're 110 pounds. That won't do much. Well, if the person's never felt good. That can happen. Uh, and so in that way, it, it's what we call a point of reference or mm -hmm. uh, creating a point of reference. We can create an imagined point of reference. That's not as powerful as actually having one, but it is helpful. Now, there's another method like, okay, if you, you know, because some people, they were a butterball coming out the chute and they, it's never changed. You know, they don't know any other different. So, but oh, who in your life has a body you can relate to? Well, my cousin, we grew up together and we look a lot alike, but she's always been skinny. And so in hypnosis, I could take this client and have her step into her cousin's body and experience what it's like to be in uh, that lean, healthy body. So now 
there's that transformational suggestion again, working in our favor so that we can move ahead there. And, uh, and now we can make some progress. Mm. Otherwise, it's a struggle. You know, even uh, people who have never been lean, still, even if they lose all the weight, they still have this overweight personality. You know, they still kind of feel like they're not quite uh, good enough or they're kind of a slug or whatever. So we got, we, we got to get over that. That's a, physically, we can change. But we got to change up here, too, to make that a permanent thing and, and be the best we can. Hmm. Um, do you think that hypnosis is more effective than, like, traditional psychology or, like, a therapist? Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? Um, there's a book called The Human Change Process by Michael... Um, calling his last name, but it's basically a college textbook. But he talks about when change occurs, it, it happens just like that. And he's not the only one. It's been said before, but when a change occurs, it, it, it happens just like that. And it doesn't matter the method. Well, one thing he talks about is whatever method you use, doesn't matter, basically. You know, it's like, there's like over 300 forms of psychotherapy. And you need to get trained in at least one of them uh, so that you have a tool to work with. But when change happens, it doesn't matter. They're all equal. You know, mm -hmm. it's one isn't really any better than the other. Right. But also, when that change happens, it's because of hypnosis. And so in hypnosis, we get you to that point of change much quicker. And uh, we get to the bottom of things. If you have something, you know, if you have a phobia or something that started when you were a baby, you sitting there talking to a therapist, you're not going to be able to access that, that kind of a memory. You, what you're going to be able to do is talk about it in a conscious state. You can be, you can talk about what you think and what happened. And you can talk about what happened when you were in junior high school but you're not likely to be talking about what happened at six months old or something like that. That's, that's a subconscious thing. And so as a hypnotist, we can address those kind of things. But frankly, most people that come in, I don't have to do that kind of deep work. You know, I can sit there and I can talk to their subconscious and convince it there's a different way of doing things. When we create a neural pathway, we keep going down that same pathway doesn't matter if it's working for us or not. We've created that neural pathway. That's the easy way to go. We keep going that way. Mm -hmm. I've got a, a little uh, uh, story that I use. It's like if every morning you get up and you head out, you step out on the front porch, and you head down this same path, and it's the same path you've been going down for years. It could be the path of a smoker or whatever, but... Every day, that's the path you take. Well, one morning you get up and you step out on the porch, and there's been a huge snowstorm, and no path is visible, except over here, during the night, with the help of your local hypnotist, we dug a path off in this direction, which is a new, healthier path. And now you start down that path, and that becomes your normal path. And there's something we call the apex. And... And uh, some, uh, some refer to it as the apex problem. But I don't think of it as a problem. But uh, when it's thought of as a problem, it's usually because of the therapist's ego. But it is when a person leaves your office and they don't even recall that there was an issue. Because life without it seems so normal, it's as if it's already been always been happening that way. And to me... I love it when it happens. A lot of therapists don't like that because they don't get credit for what happened because the client doesn't relate it to them because they don't think anything happened. But to me, that's really good hypnosis. That means the mind is really working like it should, and, you know, we, we achieved our goal. To me, that's the important thing. The important thing isn't that I get credit for it. The important thing is that the person 
achieves the goal that they want. And if they did the apex thing, that's fine because it that works for me. <laughs> hmm. Wow. So, I mean, like, for example, like me, I've been, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've just always been sort of a, a negative, sometimes pessimistic type of person. And it's something I've always wanted to change about myself. You know, I'm like, man, I could be a whole lot happier if I didn't have this, you know, negative default all the time in my head. You yeah. know? So, so someone like you, you're saying that, that, that hypnosis could help you through that rather than the last 40 years of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, I write about that in the <clears throat> Bible and some of the other books, but that's called negative bias. We all have some negative bias. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's most likely that in our genetic past, it helped to protect us. But in our uh, technical world that we live in now, we've got so many things going on, we can't look at everything through this negative bias and without feeling negative ourselves. Right. That was one of the things that we did in the, the Silva method was to kind of change how we looked at things and thought of things in a more positive way. And there's some techniques we can use that helps that. Um, First of all, just recognizing that it's there is a step in the right direction. Because if you recognize it, you can start to do something about yeah. it. Yeah. And and you, we can begin to catch ourselves. And if we, when we catch ourselves, we change those thoughts to something more uh, uh, positive. Then eventually, we'll start to think more positive all the time. You know, in the Silva method, they told us, "Don't watch the news. Don't read newspapers." Because, uh, especially at night where you go to bed, I mean, people, they watch the news and then go to bed and they got the subconscious full of all this negative junk. Mm -hmm. And uh, and now the subconscious is churning that all night long. And I took that to heart. And people go, well, how, do you, how do you know what's going on in the world? And I go, try not to know. We're so bombarded with this stuff. You know, I go, anything that I need to know happens, I'll, uh, it'll, it'll come to me. Um, you know, uh, John Stossel did a piece, uh, this has been several years back now, but he was saying that we are in the safest period of history we'd ever been in. But he said people perceive us as being in the least safe pe time of history as uh, ever. Definitely. And the reason is, a lot of it is due to the media. You know, 150 years ago, if a hurricane... Uh, hit uh, Louisiana, who knew? By the time you knew, it'll all be over and done with. Now, if uh, Prince uh, uh, Henry, uh, Harry, I mean, uh, stubs his toe on maneuvers, it, it, everybody knows it all over the world, you know? <laughs> so all this negative stuff is coming at us, and it's and there's plenty of it right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it, is that a fear of hypnotism also, like, like the news media constantly bombarding people with the same stories and the same, and the same, and these weird spins on things. Like, like that's a form of hypnotism, also, right? Oh, sure. Like they're, they want, it's almost like, I guess they profit off of selling fear. Absolutely. And wh what are they selling? You know, it's like, here's a term that we hear over and over is breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. Well, what does this mean? That term stimulates fear within us. Now we're all up on edge. Oh no, uh, I gotta watch the evening news to find out what this is all about. And, uh, and then by the time you watch the news and you find out maybe it wasn't that big of a deal anyway, uh, but at least you can go to bed without knowing you're gonna get bombed at night, but your cortisol levels are up and it takes uh, like three days for that to all leave your system again. And so if we keep getting all those cortisol levels up, you know, back uh, in the uh, George W. Bush uh, administration, what did we hear? Weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass You heard that term over and over again. And what that did is it, it um, creates dissonance. And then when he offered a solution, there was little resistance to it. 
So we went over there and we blew up the bad guys and there was no weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> but it didn't matter because he got what he wanted and he did it. You know, at election time, out in your neighbor's front yard, vote no on 13. You see a sign on the phone pole, vote no on 13. Everywhere you go, here's a sign, vote no on 13. We don't even know what vote no on 13 means. But the people who put those signs up know that if you see that enough, when you get to the polls and you see no on 13, you're likely to check that box. And we don't know. Uh, maybe they just had more money to make those signs than the mm -hmm. people who were for yes on 13. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know what 13 was. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we see it enough, and it's like we go down that, we go down that path. Oh, that must be horrible. So, so a lot of it must also have to do with like, what we expose ourselves to. Yeah. But we choose to do exposure. We choose to to watch the news and, and, and let that influence us, or do we choose to maybe pick up a book instead? Right, right, absolutely. And you should pick up one of my books instead. <laughs> and, and where can people find your books? <laughs> uh, well, Amazon is the place to go. Uh, you know, and just you can Google my name or one of my books. But you know, if people don't know much about hypnosis, then the book, What is Hypnosis Really, is a good place to start. I'd mm. give you a good feel for it. It's an easy read, you know, and I've just come out with the second edition, which has some new information in there that people have not been privy to. Uh, and uh, one of those would be um, the uh, application theory of hypnosis, where I come out with a whole different theory about what produces hypnotic response and and like that and it's uh, it's really things that happen in our world and it could be me as a hypnotist doing things to allow these things to happen or it could just be things in your daily life that triggers these uh, hypnotic responses but it's not all these things that people have been saying over the years. There's so many definitions of hypnosis, and most of them are not definitions of hypnosis. Like there's definitions that say hypnosis is a relaxed state. Well, that can be true, but we can be very much not relaxed and be in hypnosis at the same time. So, right. Uh, right. Anytime our attention is basically diverted, it's right. hypnosis, uh, right? Yeah. You know, when people are in a trauma, they're in hypnosis. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> they're not relaxed, but they're in hypnosis. Yeah, like, like you could slap somebody and give them a hypnotic <laughs> suggestion, yeah. right? Oh, and you, that's great hypnosis. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> the in the, the movies, the, the gal's all in a panic because the Indians are attacking her. John Wayne goes, smack, smack, <laughs> and he shuts up. Well, I mean, that's kind of brutal, but that is good hypnosis. He just did what we call a bypass of the critical faculty, and she shuts up, you know? Yeah. And I'm not recommending this in a clinical setting, but <laughs> but it, it's true. That's uh, It does work. And, uh, other definitions are like uh, a uh, focused concentration or focused awareness or... Um, uh, receptivity to suggestions and like that and while these things are not definitions of hypnosis what they are is descriptions of characteristics of hypnosis so if you have to be in hypnosis to see these characteristics then that can't be a definition of hypnosis so that's why I came up with this application theory of hypnosis that describes describes it in a whole different way and there's in the uh, academic world, there's a whole big conflict about whether uh, hypnosis is a state or a non-state. And it's like, and this theory just eliminates that, all that. You know, all these academics, they all want to get their name in a paper yeah. somewhere. And, and most of them are not really good hypnotists. You know, they're, they're, they're thinkers. Mm -hmm. They're thinkers. And hypnosis isn't about cognition. It's about subconscious and uh, and that sort of thing. So th they're kind of missing the boat a bit, I, I think. But is anyway, N that's the kind of description that's in there. Is NLP hypnosis? Yeah. So NLP uh, actually came out mainly from Milton Erickson, but mm -hmm. also the work of 
Virginia Satir and uh, Fritz Perls. And it is hypnosis methods uh, put to use in a more cognizant state. However, you know, Bandler and Grindler said these methods work even better in hypnosis, you know. So, but what it does is it gives people a, a way to access the subconscious mind in a way that may be more acceptable to some without feeling like, oh, I have to go into this trance and I had somebody could control me or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're useful tools. Um, and we do them. They came from hypnosis. So it's not like NLP is over here and hypnosis is over here. They're really, you know, arms of the same body, you know, limbs of the same body, really. Should people be afraid of used car salesmen and politicians using NLP to influence them? Sure. And they do. And, and we see it all the time. You know, uh, they use what we what we call pacing and leading or pacing chain or in sales, they call it uh, yes set or um, yes mm-hmm. momentum. But it's like if I'm trying to sell you a, a new Buick, um, you know, I'm going to take you for a tester. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to go, boy, uh, don't you like that uh, the metallic blue paint job on this? Oh, yes. And don't you like the hum of that V8 engine? Oh, yes. And you like the smell, that new car smell? Oh, yeah. Do you like the sound of that Bose uh, sound system? Oh, yeah. And wouldn't you like to put your name here on the dotted line? Oh, yes. Because the more times we get somebody to, to follow along, it's what we call what I call leading the mind down the merry path. The more yeses you get, the more end result is going to be <laughs> where you're mm-hmm. going. And so we like to keep going. And this is what we call truisms. You know, it's like we give people these truisms that's easy for the mind to accept. And along the way, then we go, and blah, blah, blah. And, and they go, yeah. They keep going down that road until they've taken the road that you want them to take. Hmm. That's the way sales works. They they tell you all the good stuff. They don't tell you the bad stuff. You know, when you see some medication on the TV, they tell you all the wonderful things they do about this, and then they they, <laughs> they don't tell you that. Well, if you just eat lettuce instead of pork rinds, you'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, I used to do. Um, customer service for a cable company and you know and a lot of what we had to do the scripts that we had to do were like very nlp yeah influenced. you know it's funny i i've worked with some of those uh and there was a guy here um and he did infomercials and if you were ever <laughs> up at three in the morning and couldn't sleep and you turned the tv on you probably seen him mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was all uh, to do with real estate, and uh, he had some books out, but he had these classes, and he had this huge operation. He had been a uh, Wall Street broker before he started doing this, and he had a phone bank set up and everything. I mean, it was it was crazy what he was doing, uh, but I went through his scripted materials that people... Uh, when they answered the phone that they used, and I showed him how to m- make that wording work, and I showed him doing his uh, uh, infomercials, how to use his body postures and how to speak and all that. And my secretary, uh, we got an email from him that had his latest infomercial on it, and she's sitting there in the office watching this thing, and he go and she goes, he sounds like you. And I go, yeah, he should. I taught him. <laughs> but he was doing all the things I told him to. And that's, that's how you get those many millions of dollars. You know, it's like you listen to people and you do it. Yeah. How, how about like, 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 like we mentioned the, the posture and, and like hand gestures. And I also have things like tone and voice. All that is incorporated into it, correct? Yeah. Yeah. There's some simple things. Like one of the things I taught us is, have your hands open like this. So you're inviting your audience in mm-hmm. and moving your hands toward yourself like this. You know, you're, you're bringing them to you and into you. Uh, there was a, a study some years back 
and it had to do with uh, who was who was successful uh, at uh, basically picking up somebody of the other sex, like and and they set up cameras in singles bars and they videoed all these people and they looked to see who was the most successful at finding somebody to go home with at night. And um, you have any idea who that might have been? No. So basically, it was the people who made the most mannerisms, who were the most loud, who smokers did better than non-smokers. Part of it was because they're always, they were, and of course this is when they were still smoking, but, <laughs> but they were always bringing something to their face like this, mm -hmm. which was pulling you in to them and causing interest in them. The wallflowers that are sitting back there having a drink in the shadows, nobody pays attention to them. And, and, but it's the one that gets up and yells across the room like that or whatever is the one that, that ends up with a date that night. So, uh, and I, and I say date with a little tongue in cheek, I guess. But anyway, those were the ones who were most successful. The ones who put themselves out there. We pay attention to the person on stage. We don't pay attention to the person sitting in the back of the room. Right. It pays to be outlandish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, before we wrap it up, uh, um, one more time, um, where's the best place to get your books? And where's the best place to find you? Because I also know that you have a website and teach classes and things like that. Yeah. So go to uh, hypnodenver.com. It's pretty simple, hypnodenver.com. And we have, um, there's some free stuff on there. There's stress reduction downloads, and there's stuff for prosperity and weight loss and uh, uh, writing books and stuff like that. So there's there's a lot of stuff. And uh, go to um, Amazon. You'll find my books on there. Uh, there's eight books currently in publication. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them, my weight book, is only available in audio now. It used to be print and CDs, uh, but people don't use CDs like they used to, so uh, I've done the whole thing in audio. So It makes it very uh, inexpensive, too. It used to be uh, pretty costly to get it in a print form, but now it's really uh, economical. And, and I take you through a whole weight loss uh, program uh, in there. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to your website and to your website and your books in the notes of this episode. Um, this was great. This was one of the best episodes I've ever done on hypnosis. You are, <laughs> you are fascinating. It is fascinating. And I tell you, I, you know, I have some clients, you know, they go, Oh God, Monday morning, I just get a sick feeling in my stomach. You know, and it's like, I never get that. Every day is a freaking adventure in my world, you know. You never know what's going to come walking into the office, and I like that part of it. That's awesome. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure having you. And, thank you. My um, pleasure. And just hang on for a moment while I play the outro. Okay, cool. for curious minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Huh, I think I played the intro again. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. Close enough. Recording stopped. <laughs>